Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Madam Speaker, I am uh, deeply disappointed that um, any of my Republican colleagues uh, would oppose uh, the creation of this commission. Speaker Pelosi's select committee on January 6th is unlike any other committee in American history. In fact, it is the most political and least legitimate committee in American history. You would actually think it was a normal tourist visit. Those are your words. And I stand by that exact statement. If you will read the first part I'm of my statement. I'm not interested in that. I'm asking you're you. You're not interested in my statement, Mr. are you? Chair, you are not. Uh, you know, we're not here to make a political point. They were here to desecrate this building and hurt people. The actions of the January 6th committee, I believe, are a complete assault on Americans' liberty. There have been four batches... But that's why we need to establish a national commission to understand how this happened, to gather all the facts surrounding these events, and most importantly, to ensure that it never happens again. It may be hard to remember now, but Congress wasn't always bitterly divided about the oversight of January 6th. Thank you, Senator Klobuchar and Senator Peters, uh, Ranking Member Blunt, for... The way you all have approached this process, um, it's important that we keep it bipartisan. I would even say nonpartisan. And I hope that our review continues. To that was only 16 months ago, back in March 2021. But by now, hardly anyone remembers that the initial Senate hearings over the insurrection and riot were far from the partisan brawl that later arose. A fair amount of the very early investigation is pretty bipartisan. This is Molly Reynolds, a congressional scholar at the Brookings Institution and a senior editor at Lawfare. Within about the first week after the attack, we see various congressional committees start to ask for agencies to preserve records and in some cases start to ask agencies to take some action in response to the attack. Some of um, that is, is bipartisan. But there was a trick to this early bipartisanship. The congressional committees accomplished it by steering away from anything too political, the former president most importantly. Congress had already impeached Trump, and that, as we discussed in the last episode, was divisive. So the early hearings, looking into January 6th, focused on things that nearly all members could agree on. So some of this has to do with making sure that members and others in the Capitol complex were and are safe. So members were, for example, at this uh, point in time, quite worried, um, not wrongly, about their own physical safety, both away from the Capitol and when they were scheduled to eventually return to the Capitol. So there's there's some concerns and some efforts to get information about um, member travel. I obviously was not in the investigation, but reading the report really does feel a little bit like there was an agreement to simply kind of not look at Trump's involvement. I think that's probably part of what helped keep that investigation as a serious bipartisan effort by these two these two committees. And it also everyone knew it wouldn't last forever, that the partisanship would return, and that Congress would eventually have to face the more divisive questions of accountability. But during this brief four-month period, 
Congress actually got a lot done on capital security matters. Announcing the subpoenas of five witnesses the committee says helped organize the rally that preceded the attack on the Capitol. We cannot leave the violence of January 6th and its causes uninvestigated. The indifference shown to my colleagues is disgraceful. You don't answer our questions. You create rigmarole logjams. Former President Trump is trying to stop the White House from turning documents over to the House Committee investigating. This is The Aftermath, Episode 4, A Bipartisan Interlude. President Biden has been inaugurated. So help you God. So help me God. Congratulations, Mr. President. President Trump has been acquitted. Former President Donald Trump tonight declared not guilty of the impeachment charge he incited insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th. It's February 23rd, 2021. Two Senate committees are having a joint hearing on security failures at the Capitol. When an angry, violent mob staged an insurrection on January 6th and desecrated our Capitol, the temple of our democracy, it was not just an attack on the building, it was an attack on our republic itself. We are here today to better understand what was known in advance, what steps were taken to secure the Capitol, and what occurred that day, because we want to ensure that nothing like this happens again. Over the next four months, Congressional committees will hold a total of 21 public hearings. Note what they are not about. They are not about Donald Trump. They are not about whether members of Congress colluded with the mob. They are not about who is to blame for the mobs becoming violent. They are about the physical security of the Capitol complex. That is something nearly everyone in the building agrees is important. Before diving into these hearings and what they accomplished, let's check back with the four criminal cases we've been following since the beginning of the aftermath. Here's Lawfare Associate Editor Rohini Karup with a brief update. The time period we're looking at here between the end of impeachment on February 13th, 2021 to May 1st, 2021, contains good news for two of our defendants. When we last talked about Eric Munchell, whom you might remember as a zip tie guy, he had been charged with three felony counts. A few days later, right after Trump's impeachment, a federal district court judge ordered him to remain detained pending trial, saying that he was too dangerous to release. But in late March 2021, a federal appeals court panel decided that Munchell could be released from jail to home confinement, determining that the district judge made an error in deeming Munchell a threat given that he did not engage in violence on January 6th and, if not for the mob's presence, would have posed little threat. The appeals court decision in Munchell's case was a happy one for our next defendant, Richard Barnett. Barnett, remember, was the man who had his feet up on Nancy Pelosi's desk on January 6th. When we last saw Barnett, a district court judge had denied his release before trial. But in April, after Barnett filed a new motion for bond, a district judge ordered his release from jail pending trial, citing the circuit court's reasoning in Munchell's case. So Barnett was ordered released to conditional home confinement and electronic monitoring. So two of our defendants are now back home. Between the end of impeachment and May 1st, not much happens in Jake Lang's case. Lang, remember, is the guy who allegedly attacked police outside the Capitol for several hours on January 6th. He does not benefit from Munchell's decision, having actually engaged in violence. So he remains in jail awaiting trial during this period. 
Unlike the other three defendants, Kelly Meggs had still not been arrested by the end of impeachment. He gets arrested in Florida on February 16th, 2021, and is initially added as a co-defendant to a superseding indictment with other alleged Oath Keepers, charged with conspiring to aid and abet the obstruction of an official proceeding, destruction of government property, tampering with documents, and trespassing. Over the next month and a half, prosecutors will file two additional superseding indictments with new information as they build their case against the alleged Oath Keepers. In late March 2021, a district court judge orders Meggs to remain detained pending trial. Congress begins its security response to January 6th, almost immediately after the event itself. So immediately after the attack on January 6th, the Capitol's top three security officials, so House Sergeant-at-Arms Paul Irving, Senate Sergeant-at-Arms Michael Stanger, and Stephen Sund, who was the chief of the Capitol Police, all announced that they are resigning. Chief of the U.S. Capitol Police is now stepping down following chaos at the Capitol. The assistant chief of the Capitol Police's uniformed operations was forced to resign Tuesday morning. I hereby submit my resignation as Sergeant-at-Arms of the U.S. House of Representatives. It has been an honor to serve. Signed very respectfully, Paul D. Irving, Sergeant-at-Arms. There's concern about the National Guard, who at this point is still stationed at the Capitol in quite large numbers. Do they have all of the resources that they need? So there are these photos that come out of National Guard members sleeping on the floor of the Capitol Visitor Center, which for anyone who's spent any time in that in that space were, were quite, quite arresting. Because we have photographs of National Guard troops inside the Capitol. They slept there overnight, a thousand troops inside the Capitol. There's concern on the part of members, you know, do the Guard troops have have the resources they need to to sufficiently um, protect the Capitol? It came to our attention last night that members of the National Guard, after standing on duty to protect the Capitol for Inauguration Day, keeping us safe, were sleeping in parking garages and cramped quarters. It was utterly unacceptable. I have told those who run the security of the Capitol that it can never happen again. And I pledge to every National Guard member that it will not happen again. And there's a question as well about the performance of the Capitol Police. Many of the officers were heroic. That much is clear. But how is it that the organization was so badly prepared for the events of the day? How did it not anticipate the scope and scale of the violence? About a week after the Capitol attack, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi orders a security review. Sort of the following week, January 15th, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi announces that she is appointing um, General Russell Honore to lead an investigation on the question of sort of immediate security concerns in, in the Capitol. We must subject this, this whole complex, though, to scrutiny in light of what happened and the fact that the inauguration is coming. Honoré had led the military response to um, Hurricane Katrina, sort of um, seen at least by um, by Pelosi as a kind of trusted, relatively neutral arbiter of what needs to be done pretty quickly in order to make sure the Capitol complex was secure. To that end, I have asked retired Lieutenant General Russell Honoré uh, to lead an immediate review of security infrastructure, interagency processes, a few weeks later, 
congressional committees begin their own investigations. Here's Lawfare Senior Editor Quinta Jurassic. So after January 6th, a number of congressional committees begin looking into what on earth happened. And those investigations take a lot of different forms because the event itself is so complicated. Um, There are a fair amount of investigations into what happened with Capitol Police. There are also investigations into what happened uh, not only on the policing side, but on the intelligence side. Essentially, why didn't these various government agencies know to expect something on the scale of January 6th? Why were they not prepared? It's actually not obvious which committee is responsible for investigating what. As often happens in Congress, committee jurisdictions overlap. So not only does Congress need to decide whether, what, and how to investigate, it also has to figure out who should do the investigating. In the Senate, most of the investigation ends up conducted by a unified effort between the Senate Rules and Administration Committee and the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee. In the House, it's a bit more scattered. The House Administration Committee holds several oversight hearings about capital security. The House Appropriations Committee holds hearings related to security failures and budget changes in response to the attack. And the House Oversight Committee considers intelligence failures. During the time period we're covering in this episode, the days after January 6th through May 1st, 2021, congressional committees hold almost two dozen public hearings and send at least 50 letters to prospective witnesses and agency heads seeking information about the January 6th attack. And then some of this kind of immediate response, like a request that comes from Senators Roy Blunt and Amy Klobuchar in the Senate and goes to the architect of um, the Capitol, the U.S. Capitol Police and the Senate Sergeant at Arms, again, about sort of preserving records and preserving information. By late January, committees start to focus on two core issues. And although it may be hard to imagine now, there is widespread bipartisan consensus about the need to address them. The first issue is congressional security. What needs to be done to guarantee the Capitol's immediate security needs? And how exactly did security break down of January 6th? The second issue is the failure of intelligence. Surely there had been red flags. Why were they missed? Couldn't this have been prevented? This is Senator Gary Peters, chair of the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee. There's no question that there were colossal breakdowns in the intelligence gathering and security preparations leading up to the events of January 6th, as well as during the coordination and response efforts once the attack got underway. Our goal today is to begin to understand where those breakdowns and failures occurred and to determine if there are policy and structural changes Congress must make to prevent a future attack of this nature. Some of the focus on congressional security comes out kind of right away with the resignations of the Capitol's top security officers and in some of these early, um, very early um, information requests, letters, that sort of thing. But really, I would say by the end of January is when it starts to really crystallize as an investigative focus. So that, uh, to my knowledge, the first sort of appearance by 
a capital security official in connection with the investigation um, occurs on January 26th when acting, at that point, the acting U.S. Um, Capitol Police Chief Yogananda Pittman appears in a closed session with the House Appropriations Committee. By the time of the February 23rd hearing, the Rules Committee and the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee have announced that they will jointly conduct a bipartisan investigation. This investigation will eventually produce a 127-page report providing a comprehensive timeline and detailing the intelligence, security, and communications failures that had allowed the Capitol to be attacked on January 6th. As their first witnesses, the committees call the leadership of the main security services, who at this point had already resigned, the former House and Senate sergeants-at-arms, the former chief of the Capitol Police, and the former field commander of the Capitol Police's Special Operations Division, as well as the acting chief of the Metropolitan Police Department, or MPD. And for those of you who are cynical about congressional bipartisanship, they really were bipartisan at the outset. This is Senator Amy Klobuchar, chair of the Senate Rules and Administration Committee. I think it's important to note that we planned this entire hearing on a bipartisan basis. That's because the stakes are so high, and we want this, and I say this to our witnesses as well, who are all appearing here voluntarily. I think it's important for the members to know that, and we thank them for doing that. We want this to be as constructive as possible, because in order to figure out the solutions so this doesn't happen again, we must have the facts, and the answers are in this room. And here's Roy Blunt the ranking member of the Senate Rules and Administration Committee. Really the beginning of a series of efforts that hopefully we can approach in a bipartisan way that looks for solutions and ensures that the deadly, uh, outrageous, destructive attack uh, that marks such a sad day in our history uh, never happens again. Certainly, As the testimony proceeds, it becomes clear that the witnesses agreed on a few things, including the notion that the Pentagon which didn't have a representative witness at this particular hearing, but would the following week, bore some of the responsibility. Um, and to be clear, apart from the Capitol Police Board, you also faced delays in getting authorization to bring in the National Guard from the Department of Defense. Is that correct? We'll be that, hearing from them next week. Yes, ma'am, that is correct. Um, would you agree that there were serious issues at the Pentagon that contributed um, to the fact that Guard troops did not arrive at the Capitol until about 5.40 that day? after most of the violence had subsided? I, I don't know what issues there were at the, the Pentagon, but I was certainly surprised at the delays I was, I was hearing and I was seeing. There's a fair amount of agreement across those witnesses in that hearing that the Pentagon uh, slow walked the deployment of National Guard troops to the Capitol on the 6th because they were concerned about optics. We'll come back to this concern over optics. There's also a fair amount of agreement that the federal intelligence agencies provide enough warning to, to the Capitol Police about what to expect. A clear lack of accurate and complete intelligence across several federal agencies contributed to this event and not poor planning by the United States Capitol Police. We rely on accurate information from our federal partners to help us develop effective security plans. But when it comes to identifying who was culpable for the failures that had led to January 6th, there is a lot of finger-pointing among the witnesses. 
So the major takeaways from that hearing is that all of those witnesses really try to sort of, to some degree, pass the buck to other agencies to kind of share the blame for what happened on the 6th. That includes the Pentagon, it includes the FBI, it includes the Department of Homeland Security. So the blame is being shifted here, both in terms of what actually happened on the day itself and in the in the case of the FBI and, and DHS, a lot of, uh, a lot of kind of blame for not having sufficient and robust intelligence about what to expect on on the 6th. Here's Stephen Sund of the Capitol Police. As recent as Tuesday, January 5th, during a meeting I hosted with my executive team, no entity, including the FBI, provided any new intelligence regarding January 6th. None of the intelligence we received predicted what actually occurred. Here's Chris Ray of the FBI. Uh, In my understanding was that that information was quickly disseminated and communicated with our partners, including the U.S. Capitol Police, including Metro PD, in not one, not two, but three different ways. And here's Robert Conti of the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department. I think that the intelligence uh, is not did not make it where it needed uh, to be. We received it in the form of an email that came as an, an alert bulletin at 7 o'clock p.m. the day before. The committee will come to order. Good morning to our panel. Other congressional committees hold hearings during this time frame, too. In the House, the Legislative Branch Appropriations Subcommittee holds four separate hearings between February 18th and March 3rd. Three hearings reviewing the aftermath of the breaching of the Capitol by an insurrectionist mob on January 6th. And their initial hearings in February are very sort of inward looking. And I don't mean that in um, a derogatory way, but they are, they're holding hearings on things like the House's Office of Employee Assistance, which is um, tasked with trying to help the thousands of people who work in the House of Representatives, some of whom were physically present on the 6th, others who weren't, address the the trauma of having having their workplace attacked. They have a hearing on uh, sort of the physical damage to the complex and what would be required to to address that um, and, and to repair it. Obviously, in addition to being a place where tens of thousands of people work doing the business of the country, the Capitol and the House office buildings are historic buildings with very, very sort of particular architectural um, features. And they also, again, start having hearings on the, the Capitol Police. So they're also kind of looking into that aspect of what happened on, on the 6th. And these ledge branch appropriations subcommittee hearings largely are, are bipartisan. There are a lot of a lot of sort of good serious questioning of of the witnesses that really reflected the fact that you know this small group of house members this is what they specialize in back in the senate the judiciary committee holds a hearing on march 2nd focusing specifically on the fbi it includes testimony from fbi director ray who discusses the insurrection and the broader threat of domestic terrorism so again as Ray did in his first appearances before Congress after January 6th, the Justice Department and the FBI are clearly trying to emphasize that this is a problem that they take seriously. That attack, that siege, was criminal behavior, plain and simple, and it's behavior that we, the FBI, view as domestic terrorism. It's got no place in our democracy, and tolerating it would make a mockery of our nation's rule of law. So Democrats and Republicans in multiple committees are putting their heads down and working together. They're learning a lot, 
and they're informing Americans about their work through public hearings. But if all of this sounds like a bipartisan utopia, let's not overstate things. The bipartisanship that marked the beginning of the investigations soon starts to fray. We do, though, in February, start to see kind of more Republican opposition in the House to the posture of the investigation emerge. So just a couple of examples. Some arguments from House Republicans that they were not consulted by Pelosi in her selection of General Russell Honore to um, head that outside security review. There's some objections from the Committee on House Administration Republicans that they aren't getting um, all of the information that they want. The Committee on House Administration also has um, jurisdiction over kind of the, um, not the Capitol Police budget, but other aspects aspects of Capitol Police policy and practice. And then we also, for example, see some Republicans asking for a briefing from the Department of Justice about uh, this possible investigation into whether members were giving, quote unquote, suspicious tours to outside folks the day before the insurrection itself. This is all just to say that sort of by kind of mid to late February, we do start to see the kind of early murmurings um, bubbling up under the surface of the fact that to the extent that there was bipartisanship in both chambers on the investigation in in the early weeks, that some of that, especially in the House, may be starting to break down. But for the most part, Democrats and Republicans hold together during this period. There is much work being done and much more to do. The public hearings are only a part of the various committee investigations underway. In the background, congressional investigators are poring over documents and video evidence. They're figuring out who they need to talk to and where they can get more information. And they begin making demands. Between January 6th and March 1st, congressional committees issue more than 70 letters to companies and government agencies requesting document preservation, information, and productions. And then, on March 15th, another investigator weighs in. General Honore, whom Speaker Pelosi had appointed to conduct a review of Capitol security leading up to the January 6th attack, releases his report. It provides detailed findings, as well as a series of specific recommendations. One is that the Capitol Police chief should be able to request assistance from the National Guard without seeking approval of the Capitol Police Board. So um, because it's this is the U.S. Congress we're talking about, there are some kind of institutional peculiarities in how the Capitol Police are organized and governed. And one of them involves the fact that the, the force is overseen by this, this entity known as the, the Capitol Police Board. So we put in the recommendations that the Capitol Police Chief, uh, when he see a high risk, he can go directly to the Pentagon. And that would would shorten that uh, timeline to be able to get response from the Pentagon, which has to approve the use of the DC National Guard because they go to the Pentagon through executive order to deploy the DC National Guard. The honorary review also recommends the creation of a, quote, quick reaction force that would be um, available in emergencies. The recommendations we made was to have mobilized soldiers available 24-7. That recommendation was not accepted and was not approved 
by the uh, Senate. Uh, re- um, they make some recommendations around fencing at the Capitol, which so right after the attack on January 6th, around a, a pretty sizable perimeter of the, the Capitol campus, fencing went up. This was pretty controversial for both kind of practical reasons for people who um, live and work um, in and around the Capitol complex, and also kind of for symbolic optics reasons. So that the, the honorary review made some recommendations around sort of deploying things like mobile and retractable fencing. They also made some recommendations around sort of changing and adapting protection available to members um, when they're in their districts. The honorary report is not sparing in its criticism of security forces. Nevertheless, members of Congress react positively for the most part. There is even bipartisan support for some of the recommendations Honoré made. Despite, as I, as I mentioned earlier, some sort of Republican grumbling around the selection of Honoré, the report itself got some sort of bipartisan praise. So I'm um, Rodney Davis, who's a Republican from Illinois and the ranking member on the Committee on House Administration, which again is the panel in the House that has responsibility for a lot of these questions around the Capitol complex and certainly the, the policy and practices of the Capitol Police. He called the recommendations or called a lot of the recommendations um, spot on, nonpartisan, unbiased. So we do see some bipartisan support for for the for the the recommendations. So what did we find out over the course of these largely bipartisan investigations? A lot of what we learned came from witness testimony and hearings, and from a joint report issued by the Senate Rules and Administration Committee and the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee in June 2021. Here's Quinta Jurassic. One of the dynamics that the uh, Senate report describes is a situation where Capitol Police, once people start breaching the Capitol, is desperately trying to get support. So they call for the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department and those officers show up. Uh, but it takes hours and hours for the D.C. National Guard to arrive. Essentially, by by the time the National Guard shows up, all the protesters are, are already leaving. And there are a number of reasons why. Uh, One of them has to do with the fact that they needed to essentially place a call to the Pentagon to get this approved. At 1.30 p.m. on January 6th, we watched as the Metropolitan Police Department began to employ officers to support the Capitol Police. In doing so, the officers began to withdraw from the traffic control points that were jointly manned with District of Columbia Guardsmen. At 1.49 p.m., I received a frantic call from then Chief of United States Capitol Police, Stephen Sun, where he informed me that the security perimeter of the United States Capitol had been breached by hostile rioters. Chief Sun, his voice cracking with emotion, indicated that there was a dire emergency at the Capitol, and he requested the immediate assistance of as many available National Guardsmen that I could muster. Immediately after that 149 call, I alerted the U.S. Army senior leadership of the request. The approval for Chief Sun's request would eventually come from the acting Secretary of Defense and be relayed to me by Army senior leaders at 5.08 p.m., about three hours and 19 minutes later. As people watched their TVs, horrified, as rioters overran and beat Capitol Police for hours on end, many had wondered, where is their backup? Why hasn't someone sent in the National Guard? 
As it turns out, there actually was an explanation for this. It wasn't part of a devious master plan to support the rioters that had been hatched in some smoke-filled room in the weeks prior. It wasn't that dramatic. The problem, it seems, was a structural one. As we might expect, given how much of its hearings were focused on this question of National Guard assistance on the 6th, it really highlights some, some shortcomings in, in that process for requesting National Guard help. And, and here I'm, I'm quoting from the report. It says, none of the Capitol Police board members on January 6th could fully explain in detail the statutory requirements for requesting National Guard assistance. And there was no formal process um, for such requests. So why did you hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role in a given month. Over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I believe that you needed the approval of Mr. Irving and Mr. Stinger um, to request assistance to the National Guard. That's, that's, that's always been the case. We only request the National Guard for very specific uh, events, usually the inauguration, and that requires a declaration of emergency from the Capitol Police Board to utilize those resources. Do you know if there's a statutory requirement for that? I could look into that and get that to you as a follow-up if you do like something. I don't, I don't know that there is, but I, I do know that... The next series of questions related to intelligence. It was obvious that there had been a breakdown. Surely the Capitol Police and other security services would have been better prepared if they had known what to expect. Was the problem that the intelligence hadn't been gathered properly? That it didn't exist? Or was the problem that it hadn't been disseminated effectively? The answer, multiple investigations found, was both. In his testimony, FBI Director Chris Wray denied that the FBI had failed to warn the Capitol Police. Why didn't you sound the alarm in some more visible and ringing way? Well, uh, Senator, uh, I guess a couple things. One, uh, over the course of 2020, we repeatedly, repeatedly put out intelligence products uh, on this very issue, domestic violent extremism, domestic violent extremism specifically tied to the election, domestic violent extremism specifically tied to the election and continuing beyond the election up through the inauguration, and specifically in December of 2020. In addition to that, in connection with the, the one piece of uh, raw intelligence that's been discussed so much here today, we did pass that on to the people in the best position to take action on the threat uh, not one, not two, but three different ways. Now, more broad- As Capitol Police witnesses testified, the Capitol Police does not have an intelligence function. 
it is charged with securing the Capitol complex. But to assess threats and plan accordingly, it relies on the intelligence community and federal and local law enforcement partners. Yes, I think what's important to realize as a law enforcement agency, we're, we're a consumer of intelligence and information that's provided by the intelligence community. Uh, the intelligence community is 18 federal agencies that uh, collect information, uh, do the analyzing of the raw data, raw intelligence, and then provide it to us. So we're reliant on that information to be complete and accurate. So what did the Capitol Police know? And what didn't it know? This was one of the main questions of the bipartisan investigation being conducted jointly by the Senate Rules Committee and the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee. And, as their June report made clear, they learned a lot during their investigation. So the picture that the Senate report sketches is really of a collection of agencies that both aren't talking to one another and aren't talking within themselves. First off, Capitol Police did not get very much, if any, information from its partners in the intelligence community, from the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security. And the information that it did get from the FBI and from uh, internal reports that were prepared by the intelligence components within the Capitol Police was were not shared. Uh, within the agency were not distributed widely. So there's a there's a document that uh, Capitol Police puts together uh, that's called a special event assessment um, on January 3rd, um, which concludes that, quote, Congress itself is the target on the 6th. That sounds pretty alarming. But then there are reports, intelligence reports that come out on subsequent days leading up to the 6th that say that the likelihood of violence is either remote or improbable. Here's Acting Chief of the Capitol Police, Yogananda Pittman, testifying before the Legislative Branch Subcommittee on February 25th. Although we knew the likelihood for violence by extremists, no credible threat indicated that tens of thousands would attack the U.S. Capitol. So you can see this dynamic where it seems like some people in Capitol Police are aware that something bad might happen, but that information is kind of not filtering up and it's not filtering out. Capitol Police may not even understand that fully itself, and it's not letting other people know either. But it's more complicated than that. If the Capitol Police, or at least most of the Capitol Police, didn't expect the violence of the 6th, is that because there really was no warning? That possibility was ruled out pretty quickly. It became clear that some agencies within the government did have information that should have served as a warning. So why were the Capitol Police officers, who were primarily responsible for defending the Capitol complex, seemingly in the dark? Was it because they failed to understand what they were seeing? or because the information that would have allowed them to prepare didn't reach them? And if it didn't reach them, is that because no one gave them the information in the first place? Or because the information just didn't get to the right people within the Capitol Police? And then there's the separate question of, okay, so why didn't it get any information from the Department of Homeland Security or the FBI? The Senate report says that DHS didn't put together anything to share um, about the the risk of violence. The FBI uh, puts out only one formal document from, of all places, the Norfolk, Virginia field office, which is sent around 
Um, and the FBI kind of points to that later to kind of say, aha, we were on the ball. But that's one document from a field office. The Norfolk report got a lot of attention uh, when it was reported on for obvious reasons. Um, it was a, a sign that at least someone in the FBI knew what was probably coming. And it was a document that FBI leadership later pointed to, to kind of say that they, they did know what was going to happen. So this was a uh, what's called a situational information report. It was prepared by our Norfolk field office specifically for dissemination. It was, as you noted, uh, raw, unverified, uncorroborated information uh, that had been posted online. Uh, and my understanding was that that information was quickly, as in within an hour, uh, disseminated and communicated with our partners, including the U.S. Capitol Police. So it's it's not you know it's not a document from headquarters. It's not a document that comes down from FBI Director Christopher Wray, right? It's it's something that's at a field office, kind of devolved off from FBI HQ. It's not a formal intelligence bulletin. Um, it is what's called a situational information report. Uh, which uh, the the Senate report describes as basically a mechanism that's used by field offices to kind of share information that they come across. Um, it doesn't have to meet the same criteria as a formal intelligence assessment. It's basically, you know, you find something that might be going on, you want to send that to your your relevant law enforcement partners. It's also not put together in time to give the Capitol Police much opportunity to prepare. They put that together on January 5th. Um, they send it to the FBI's field office in Washington, D.C. on the evening of January 5th. At that point, the FBI's Washington field office sends it to other law enforcement partners, including the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department, the Capitol Police, essentially saying, hey, you want to take a look at this? And one of the interesting things is that in the Senate report, uh, the leader of Capitol Police kind of says, well... It's not enough for us to just get sent this by email. You know, this is a really important document. Like they should have given us more of a heads up. You know, maybe we're not going to maybe we don't check our emails constantly that that there's sort of been, you know, more of a more of a klaxon going off. And it also appears per the report that even though Capitol Police did receive this document, it didn't go all the way up to the leadership of Capitol Police. Um, so there's this document floating around. Leadership doesn't know about it. While FBI leadership touted the document in their testimony, they actually weren't aware of it at the time. The FBI leadership doesn't even know about it. Uh, FBI Director Christopher Wray said he didn't even learn about it until after January 6th. It's this kind of, you know, crucial smoking gun in a way showing that the FBI did know or someone in the FBI knew that something bad might happen, but it just, it doesn't get disseminated. There's one other investigation that has interesting things to say on this particular subject. One week after the January 6th attack, the Capitol Police's Inspector General had announced that he would be investigating the police's handling of January 6th. At the time, it wasn't clear whether the public would learn much from that investigation. But when the Inspector General releases his major report in April 2021, it reveals something interesting. Some of the things that come out in this report are indications that perhaps the Capitol Police actually did have more advanced warning um, about what was going to happen or what might happen on the 6th than was previously indicated. Tonight, a new Inspector General report revealing just three days before the attack, 
Capitol Police intelligence analyst wrote that Congress itself is the target and that the Stop the Steal movement had the likelihood of attracting white supremacists, militia members, and others who actively promote violence. There's also some material in, in the report about how officers were um, perhaps instructed by leadership at the Capitol Police not to use the most aggressive tactics available to them. And there's also some, some pretty pretty damning findings around element of the Capitol Police that's charged with managing violent protests and sort of comes out in this report that that was not an assignment that was especially sought after for Capitol Police officers. The investigations into the Capitol Police actually revealed another fundamental question. Who, at the end of the day, was actually in charge of security on January 6th? Sure, the Capitol Police protect the Capitol complex, but it wasn't until the rioters left the ellipse, where Trump finished his remarks around 1 p.m., that a massive crowd marched a mile and a half down the National Mall to reach the Capitol where it would join protesters who had already gathered there. Authorities had known about that rally on the ellipse. So who else was responsible for security that day? This was another question that the bipartisan Senate Joint Committee investigation looked into. Its findings were summarized in the report it released in June. The report states that in advance of January 6th, Uh, The Justice Department was designated as what's called the lead federal agency, which is kind of a formal designation that means that, you know, that agency, they're kind of the hub. They're the place that is supposed to be coordinating everything to kind of manage this complex event. This is a striking fact, given that there are virtually no Justice Department personnel on the Capitol grounds. But it gets more complicated. Because if not justice, then who? The Defense Department officials who are interviewed by the committee, they all say, we we did not want to be in charge of this. Again, because of the George Floyd protests, we, we do not think it is appropriate for the military to be the lead federal agency in charge of taking a look at a protest um, that might have been a peaceful protest on in Washington, D.C. So they all say, we were told that the Justice Department was designated as the lead federal agency. The problem is that, uh, according to the report, the Pentagon can't get in touch with the Justice Department. They're not given a clear line of contact. You know, you would imagine if this agency is in charge, you would want a lot of communication, people calling in and out, a clear way for people to talk to them. The, the Pentagon doesn't have that. Um, and there's a there's a certain point where uh, uh, Christopher Miller, who was the acting defense acting Secretary of Defense on the time of January 6th, uh, told the committees that he actually uh, took up convening calls between agencies in the midst of what happened on January 6th because they couldn't get a hold of the Justice Department. And to quote Miller, somebody needed to do it. Um, So the picture that you get from the Pentagon is really of a Justice Department that is just absent. And the thing that's important in the report is that they can't get word from the Justice Department about what was happening. Uh, the the committee's right that the department uh, has not fully complied with their requests for information. As we noted earlier, the Department of Justice was absent in another sense. Unlike the Capitol Police, the FBI does have an intelligence gathering function. And while the FBI field office in Norfolk produced one report germane to the riot, it is striking how little information there was coming out of the FBI. 
you know, it's not rocket science to figure out that something might be happening on the 6th. Uh, for one thing, Trump is tweeting, you know, be there, will be wild. There are people who are talking about it all over Facebook, um, all over Parler, all over Twitter, all over Gap. You know, all you need to do is boot up the internet and it's right there. And so uh, FBI Director Christopher Ray and then Assistant Director for Counterterrorism Jill Sanborn are essentially asked, why didn't you guys look at this stuff? And they, they give uh, answers that I would argue are pretty misleading, um, but they're actually not pushed on it. The FBI's answer to this question is that it is not allowed to scan social media. Here's Assistant Director for Counterterrorism Jill Sanborn testifying on March 3rd, 2021. Under our authorities, because being mindful of the First Amendment and our dual-headed mission to uh, uphold the Constitution, we cannot collect First Amendment uh, protected activities without sort of the next step, which is the intent. And so we'd have to have an already predicated investigation that allowed us access to those comms and or a lead or a tip or a report from a community citizen or a fellow law enforcement partner for us to gather that information. So the FBI does not monitor publicly available social media conversations? Correct, ma'am. It's not within our authorities. If someone is tweeting, you know, I'm so mad that the election was stolen, I want to go to the Capitol and, you know, give Congress a piece of my mind, that that's First Amendment protected speech. And so Ray and Sanborn are saying, well, look, like we can't we can't just you know, start recording everything that everyone tweets because that would raise serious uh, questions about government overreach. We have to sort of start an investigatory process in order to take a look at those tweets. And that requires a, a level of sort of information that we don't have or that we didn't have in advance of January 6th. But this, Jurassic says, isn't quite right. Sanborn is saying, essentially, that the FBI has to have a preliminary or a full investigation, a predicated investigation, already open before it can look at social media. This is just not right. Um, I don't know if what she was saying was garbled. The reason why this is misleading is very complicated, and it has to do with the specifics of something that uh, if you listen to uh, journalists who report on the FBI or people who are in the FBI, they'll call the dialogue. That stands for the FBI Domestic Investigations and Operations Guide. If you actually look at the guidelines, the FBI pretty clearly does have the authority to, at the very least, you know, open Twitter and see what people are saying. They just didn't use it. But if you look at Appendix L of the FBI guidelines, uh, which covers how the Bureau can use publicly available information, it states explicitly, and I'm quoting here, FBI employees are permitted to conduct proactive internet searches of publicly available information to process observations or other information for authorized purposes, even, and then this is even prior to the initiation of an assessment or a predication. Now, you can only record that information if an assessment or a predication has been opened, but the guidelines explicitly say you can go look on Twitter without having a assessment or a predication. Now, you do need what's called an authorized purpose. Okay, so what's an authorized purpose? And this is what this is what Ray is saying as well. The FBI needs the authorized purpose to look at social media. So what's that? 
Again, under the guidelines, an authorized purpose is defined as, quote, a national security, criminal, or foreign intelligence collection purpose. Again, I would think that people threatening to storm the Capitol would very much meet that standard. And this is particularly striking because when Ray goes in front of Congress, he emphasizes the FBI has thousands, I think he says 1,400, open domestic terrorism cases before January 6th. This is not something that the FBI has dropped the ball in. It is something that they take very seriously. Uh, In terms of domestic violent extremism, domestic terrorism, uh, that number is now, has grown steadily uh, on my watch. So I've, we've increased the number of domestic terrorism investigations from around 1,000 or so when I got here to up to about 1,400 at the end of last year to about 2,000 now. That's domestic terrorism overall. Is it really the case that none of those 1,400 investigations they had opened before January 6th gave them the kind of hook they needed, even if you agree with Ray and Sanborn about the higher standards that they needed to look at social media, that just strikes me as, frankly, not credible. But when they testified before Congress, Ray and Sanborn were not pushed on these points, nor were they pushed on another question, one that came up both in the context of misjudging the threat and in the context of how security services responded. Is it possible that the law enforcement reaction was conditioned by who the protesters were? Something that that shows up in the Senate report is that there's a lot of anxiety throughout the government, most notably in the Pentagon, but in other agencies as well, about overreacting. You have to remember that this is a circumstance where D.C., the, the summer before, the summer of 2020, had seen quite well-attended protests over the murder of George Floyd by Officer Derek Chauvin in Minnesota. And law enforcement under the direction of President Trump had reacted extremely aggressively. The National Guard was called out. The D.C. Metropolitan Police Department was there. Capitol Police was there. It became, in some instances, quite violent Police officers fired uh, tear gas um, and pepper spray at protesters. There's this kind of anxiety among law enforcement and, and the Pentagon of, we don't want to do that again. William Walker, commander of the D.C. National Guard, would testify that the racial justice protests were indeed front of mind. What do you think was going on here in terms of why this matter uh, took so long to, to respond to? So Senator King, I think it was a combination of both. In my judgment, it was um, two factors. So I think it was more um, the word that I was, I kept hearing was the optics of it. And it was concern that it could inflame the, uh, the protesters. Again, if you look at the response to the George Floyd protests and the response to January 6th, they are dramatically different. The FBI deputy director during the George Floyd protests sent out a memo comparing it to a possible another 9-11. These are peaceful protesters protesting the, the death of a black man at the hands of police. And under those circumstances, I think it is more than reasonable to say What is it that may have been driving the disparate response within the FBI, within the government, to these different protests? One with protesters, many of whom were black, people of color. One with protesters, the majority of whom were white and protesting uh, in favor of the president. 
at least two former senior FBI officials have raised concerns about this question. Here's former counterintelligence specialist Pete Strzok. Anytime you have an organization that is made up largely of white conservative males, there's always, I think, a question about whether or not you're going to take it easy on white conservative males. And here's former Deputy Director Andrew McCabe. There's some really interesting data points. Those people are overwhelmingly male and overwhelmingly white. That you would expect. That that's not who the Bureau was looking for in the run-up to January 6th. Now, is it because that group of people looks a lot like the majority of the FBI? Maybe. And if that's the case, that's a really damaging thing. I don't know, I don't know that it is, uh, but that's something that the Bureau, I think, should be looking at. The bottom line is they weren't looking in the right place. And we now know that that's where the threat came from. I'm simply saying the, it may be time for the FBI to recalibrate. While the Senate report provides a detailed look at the intelligence and security failures on January 6th, it has some limits and some notable omissions. In addition to really not looking at implicit bias, there are other areas that were apparently just too thorny to get into. For one, the hearings didn't explore how systemic flaws within the Capitol Police or the federal intelligence community may have contributed to the failures. It um, really does focus on this narrow time frame in the weeks before the attack and the day um, of itself. It does not um, dig into some of these bigger, more structural questions about longer term dysfunction, either in the Capitol Police or in other parts of particularly the um, federal intelligence community um, on these questions of whether they were looking in the right places at the right information and transmitting it properly to the Capitol Police to help them be prepared for something like the sixth. Most centrally for what happens next in the story, it entirely omitted discussion of Trump's role. They do not get to the question of how was it that the president himself was involved in this? Not just in terms of what communications might he have had with any of these agencies, including with the Justice Department. What role did his rhetoric play in advance of January 6th and, and on the day itself? He's just not there in the body of, of the report. And I think the reason is that this is a bipartisan document. It's produced by two Senate committees. It's a joint document that is not produced only by the Democratic majority. And I think you can see in that how the investigators might have tried to smooth things over between the Democrats and Republicans on the committee by just staying as far away from Trump as they possibly could. This is obviously tricky work. I think it leaves a extremely notable hole in the center of the report. But it's also a reminder of how hard it is to produce a bipartisan document about an event where the president or the former president of one of the parties is very much at fault. The inability to confront this issue on a bipartisan basis ultimately does not just limit these inquiries. It makes it nearly inevitable that the effort to create a national commission to investigate January 6th will collapse and that investigating Trump's role will require the creation of the House Select Committee, a story we will tell in the next episode. But it's wrong to think of this period of congressional oversight as useless. Congress actually got a lot done, and some of it led to real reforms. The Capitol Police developed and implemented new department-wide operational plans for large events. 
It improved its intelligence handling procedures. It got more funding. Congress passed legislation making it easier for the National Guard to assist in the event of an emergency on Capitol Hill. In other areas, though, change has been slow. Despite lots of conversation and calls in the spring of 2021 for the Capitol Police Board to be either eliminated or restructured as the body responsible for uh, governing the Capitol Police, it still exists. It has not been eliminated um, and its membership has not changed. So that is that is something that I think if you had asked people a year ago, would that be true now? They they might have said, no, we definitely would have made some, some structural change there and, and just hasn't happened. It is the case that thanks to legislation passed in December of 2021, the Capitol Police Chief does now have the ability to request emergency assistance without the approval of the Capitol Police Board. But according to a government accountability office report that came out in February um, of this year, that legislation has been passed, but the Capitol Police have not taken all of the steps necessary to really sort of operationalize that change. So the Capitol Police Manual of Procedures um, still lacks, and I'm quoting here from GAO, clearly detailed procedures for obtaining outside assistance in an emergency. Congress has spent some money on capital security issues. In July 2021, there was a a security supplemental passed, a sort of supplemental spending bill that did include additional resources for Hill security. It did not include $200 million that had been originally proposed, but didn't make it into the final bill for the kind of quick reaction force that had been recommended um, by the Honoré Review. Congress took a sort of characteristically long time to um, pass a discretionary omnibus spending bill to fund most federal operations, including the legislative branch itself, so including also its security uh, apparatus. But when that was signed into law in in March of 2022, it included almost a 20% increase in funding for the House Sergeant at Arms, an 11% increase in funding for the Senate um, Sergeant at Arms, sizable increases in funding for the the Capitol Police. It did uh, include language instructing the um, Capitol Police Inspector General to make reports publicly available, quote, wherever practicable and to begin publishing reports on its website. But the work is definitely unfinished. In February of 2022, the GAO issued a report that says that it's still the case that, quote, there is no formal process by which the Capitol Police Board reviews or makes decisions about whether to accept or reject security recommendations that come from the Capitol Police. So the sort of bottom line here is that the, the, even a year plus after the 6th and even after, you know, real serious investigative oversight in both chambers, the Capitol Police is still sort of, there's still more work to be done in terms of kind of formalizing and documenting procedures about how outside assistance in an emergency should be sought, you know, who is responsible for doing doing what, you know, once the kind of Capitol Police have made recommendations about security changes, how do those get reviewed and um, decided on by the Capitol Police Board, that sort of thing. And so there's, I think, progress has been made, but there's also still a lot of work to do. In the immediate aftermath of January 6th, and for the few months that followed, Democrats and Republicans were able to stay united on some of their efforts to respond to the attack. And for a brief period, they made some real progress. 
But as the questions turned from who to hold accountable for failing to stop the attack to who to hold accountable for causing the attack in the first place, the bipartisan spirit evaporated. The prospect of an independent national commission to investigate the attack initially had support from both sides. But politics intervened. And that's when everything broke down. That's not the case. All right, well, let's close with the oversight Mr. Committee. Jordan, why did you vote against the commission of five Republicans, five Democrats, equal subpoena power? Why did you oppose that? Are you also not interested in what happened to us on January 6th? Of course, everyone is interested in That's next time on The Aftermath. The Aftermath is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. I'm your host, Natalie Orpet. Scripting by me, Ian Enright, Rohini Kurup, and Benjamin Wittes. Series executive producers are me, Benjamin Wittes, and Ian Enright. Senior producer is Megan Nodolsky. Associate producer is Rohini Kurup. Interviews for this episode were conducted by me and Rohini Kurup. Production assistance from Isabel Kirby McGowan, Kara Schillen, and Max Johnston. Research assistance from Catherine Pompilio. To learn more about Lawfare, visit lawfareblog.com, where you can find the Lawfare team's January 6th project, Confronting the Insurrection. <laughs>